Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. The Tick, if you don't already know, is a superhero. He was created by Ben Adlin, who's my guest. The Tick started out as a comic book, then it became an animated TV show, then a video game, then a live-action TV show. And now, maybe 10 or 15 years since the last version, another live-action TV show, now on Amazon. The Tick is, well, he is a Tick superhero, a giant man in a blue suit with antennas on his head. He has strength and speed and invincibility, but he is a genuine dope. He doesn't always know where he came from. He isn't particularly concerned with the things that human people have to deal with, like money and jobs or basically anything besides justice and destiny. Those are the two things he's interested in. In this newest show, he's played by the great Peter Serafinowicz. So anyway, The Tick. He finds a sidekick, a little dorky accountant named Arthur. Arthur basically worries about all the normal human things on The Tick's behalf. And also, the other thing he does is fly in a moth suit. He has a moth suit. It's a superhero show that is both absolutely preposterous and oddly grounded. The villains are bizarre and goofy. Uh, There's a guy with a chair for a head. Uh, There is a lobster in a giant trench coat. But there are also people who act like real people. And actions in this world have consequences. And even superheroes aren't immune to government oversight. Like, take this clip from the show's new second season. Aegis is the secret government-funded organization that is basically an official superhero registry. Half registry, half clubhouse. And the government wants the Tick and Arthur to sign up. And in this scene, the two of them have just finished watching a presentation video at Aegis HQ about how great Aegis is. And they're starting to mull things over. And then a mysterious Dr. Agent Hobbs introduces himself. Dr. Hobbs, by the way, played by my good friend and uh, podcast co-host, John Hodgman. Okay, let's take a listen. Well, that was a little cool. A little cool tick? Are you kidding me? We're here at Aegis. I mean, we're really here, you know, not just for a school field trip or something. I mean, man, can you believe they actually want us to register as superheroes? We're already registered, chum, with Destiny. And she's given us a brand new supervillain to fight. And the press has dumped him Lobstercules. Uh, I, th- I think, Tech, I-, I think that's pronounced Lobstercules. Lobstercules. I don't get it. I don't either. Anyhow, we should introduce this bank-robbing lobster to surf and turf, now offering market prices. Yes, okay, but we'll, we'll do that, okay? I promise, we're on the case, but first, can we please just get licensed? I mean, you heard Rathbunk. He thinks we have a real shot at joining the new Flag Five. An exciting time to be alive, am I right? Gentlemen, I'm Dr. Agent Hobbs, acting branch director of science. H- have you been there the whole time? Yes. 
I love this movie. <laughs> ben, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Congratulations on getting a third television show out of the thing that you invented when you were a teenager. Right? That's uh, <laughs> that's real. That's economy. <laughs> I milked that. Yeah, no, this has been really amazing to have it, to revisit it. Let's talk a little bit about the deepest roots of the tick. When I say that you invented it as a teenager, I'm not being hyperbolic, right? You literally were a teenager when you created yeah, the tick. I was, uh, I, I'd say, 17, if not at the furthest reaches of 16 it, when it started. This is like a for people who draw the logo of their would-be heavy metal band on their composition book in yes. junior year U.S. history yep. and then start that band and become famous at that? This is that. <laughs> this is that. Yeah. And I used to draw comic book covers, you know, and part of the ritual of drawing comic book covers was to draw the price. I would make up the price and try to have as clean a circle as possible. I mean, before I got actually involved in doing it, that was a, a dream, you know, and that was a lot of my uh, drawing time. I did a lot of drawing, but comic. Pretend, like you say, like making the logo of your band or, you know, uh, emulation of the forms. Did you intend as a teenager to be the author of uh, serious mass market superhero comics or... Was the emergence of the tick a reflection of what was always going to be your thing, which is something that is a sideways version of that? Initially, I was sort of looking at maybe doing a more serious kind of straightforward superhero expression. I mean, I would say like at 15 and 16. But by the time, uh, you know, I had uh, sort of gotten it, basically after a certain point in time, my own interests I didn't realize we're pretty tuned to the subversive. We're uh, interested in um, uh, analysis and dissection. And then also just I had a huge appetite for uh, weirdness and, and the grotesque. I think that came from in part my uh, my dad was a fine artist and a surrealist and uh, and had a very interesting way of being. And yeah, the, the long way of getting around the answer is no it was always going to be a warped expression i just didn't realize it early on what was interesting about your dad's way of being uh he was uh how to put it um anecdotally okay so the tick as a as a thing in life right i lived on a cranberry bog uh sort of in a rural suburb in um called pembroke in massachusetts i had a lot of dogs well, a couple of dogs, but a rotation of animals. And so ticks were a real thing. We had them. The dogs had them. My dad would, every year, at the beginning of summer, he would fill a mason jar full of gasoline and put it on the kitchen windowsill, which is like asking for an explosion. Uh, and he would fill it, uh, like he would pull the ticks off, which would be swollen like olives off of our dogs, and just fill the jar through the uh, the summer season, like a and 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 that became like, like people who collect wine corks. Yes, and and so it would end up looking like a jar of olives by the end of the a mason <laughs> jar of olives at the end of the season, and it was gorgeous and horrific. And there were so many things that my dad did that were like that. Uh, 
um, because he was sort of a, he was an artist and a kind of a homegrown intellectual, um, just Yankee weirdo doing a lot of weird stuff that I didn't really, I mean, we just grew up in the, in the, in the palm of that without understanding that we were, my brother and I were being kind of schooled toward oddness, (laughs) um, for which I'm grateful because it's a perspective. Uh, I have, as you pointed out, exploited it, uh, Tripoli. Did your family draw a lot together? Mm -hmm. Well, early on. Um, and then, I mean, my brother and I were creative together when we weren't fighting. Then we kind of, we luckily happened upon Dungeons and Dragons, which sort of united us. And then, then that became like a very kind of communal creative experience. But, uh, my dad would sort of be more like either making something curious in the basement or uh, doing uh, sort of like design work in his den. He had a den. Yeah, I mean, like an example is he built a full scale, anatomically correct, six foot long bee, like a honey bee, which he convinced the local library and the fire department to put on the cupola of the local library, like this crazy gorgeous, like it looked like a science fiction movie in Pembroke, like a giant bee had landed on the library. What did he make it out of? Uh, like fiberglass and Bondo and chicken wire and like just, but it was, it's still up there, right? Like uh, this was in the 70s, right? Because the spelling bee, my mother was the head librarian. She was an amazing figure as well. So... When you created The Tick, what was the first venue for The Tick? It initially was a... uh, So uh, New England Comics was a comic book store, uh, a series of comic book stores, like a small chain in our area. And one was in Brockton, which was a few towns over from where we were playing D&D. And I, through a friend, heard that they were looking for comic artists. And so, because this was in the 80s, the late 80s, sort of mid it was a tail end of what was called the black and white explosion, which was an independent influx of like small press and in black and white, black and white, not for arts, artistic reasons, but because you could print black and white much more economically in in small quantities. Exactly. And it was sort of a, it was a looked down upon medium until a series of comic books started to garner these real collector prices. And then a lot of speculation developed and that fueled, a really beautiful time of like uh, individual creativity and expansion, like that sort of. That was great. So initially, I went to New England Comics just trying to get in on that. I had uh, some precocious drawing skill on my hands, but they saw this character I was working on, and uh, George Suarez and Bob Polio, the editor and sort of art director of New England Comics, saw it and. Encouraged me to work on, uh, first I, he sort of appeared in their newsletter, which was a kind of national newsletter that was a direct mail kind of comic book ordering kind of thing. And he became sort of one of the mascots of that and had some early appearances. And that developed into a comic book over about a year and a half. So I went to art school in Boston and kind of really cheated on myself in terms of like spent a lot of time finishing this first issue of the comic book. It was really one of my key focuses that turned out to be 
strategically a good move. But yeah, um, so it was initially uh, in their newsletters, and then we decided to do a small press, a 5,000-run comic of uh, the first issue. And I thought it was going to kind of just come and go because it was really starting to look like that was the end of this period of uh, the black and white explosion. But something about it and its point of view on superheroes and its kind of rough and ragged charm kind of carried over. How would you describe the difference between the world that the Tick lives in and the world that Spider-Man or Superman live in? What's yeah. what's the part of the perspective that's different? <laughs> I'd say that if you look at it, if you look at the straight down the road superhero universes that we understand as the sort of primary, right? Basically, all of them come from a, a pretty unfettered source of like wish fulfillment and a desire for cool. And coolness is embraced in those um, universes in this way where if a hero is able to uh, gain entry into one of those narratives, there's sort of this protective cartilage around that hero that will make him cool. If he finishes lighting a cigarette and throws the book of matches, it will land like Ferris Bueller is a classic version of it. Like he'll throw the baseball to shut off the snoring mannequin and the ball will go bouncing off the stereo and land in a baseball glove because he's in, he's being embraced by the cool, right? And superheroes depend on that. That's an unseen lifeblood of what keeps the wish fulfillment circuit going. Oh, I want to be that person. I want to be that cool. Look at how effortless and cool they are. In the Tix universe, there is no such cartilage. There is no such protective sheath around these poor people. They have put their chits or their ante on the table, and they keep trying to be cool. But the car doesn't work, right? And the, um, the, it takes too long to load the supercomputer. And there's uh, this relationship that they can't get out of or get into, or there's a problem at work. These coolness doesn't come, and so they must make do and um, still have those heroic aspirations in a world that's relentlessly mundane. I mean, I feel like in The Tick, you have these two main characters, right? Yeah. You have uh, The Tick, who is... He is the most classic form of superhero, which is to say he's, like, just super strong and super involved. Barely visible, almost, because he's just, like, so classic. He just has, like, basic super... He's basically superhero is his superpower. (laughs) No no options, no frills. And (laughs) the, the way that he has to deal with what it means to be a superhero is that he has no other context at all. Like, in the real world, he is totally meaningless yes because he does not he's not of the real world he is a superhero so he is incongruous anywhere he is unless he's running through a wall basically yes uh he he has a lot of and that's been fun to investigate in the new series because it's really the most nuanced and the most uh real world we've ever presented i've ever presented like with the tick in it so those things become higher relief. Um, he is not, I always talk about him as a four color 
personage. He's not all the colors. He's a four-color press, you know, comic book creature, and he's here. So he's very simplistic and basically partial, and that could be debilitating. You know the potato chip brain? I think it's hydrocephalitis or encephalitis. It's like some people go to school, they're in mid-college, and then they end up for some reason getting an MRI, and it's revealed that they don't have hardly any brain. They have a lining of brain and a lot of fluid in their head, and they're doing pretty good. They're doing okay. The tick has tremendous partiality. Like you're saying, he doesn't, he's like a, a plot device intersecting with the world in some ways that woke up or something, and he's trying to catch up, but he Purple Rose of Cairo is kind of a, another version of that. There's this guy that comes out of the screen, you know, and Jeff Daniels is trying to be a person, but he's not, right? And the, and the distance is fascinating. And, like, can he complete that distance? The Tick is trying, you know. And the Tick has a sidekick named Arthur. He does. Who dresses in a moth-like fashion. And Arthur is the polar opposite of that, which is to say that he is, you know, like there's part of, especially with sidekicks, there is this fantasy fulfillment of what if a boy got to be a superhero, mm-hmm. right? Like Robin or whatever. Yeah. And he has that quality, though he is a man. He is a small <laughs> man. <laughs> a slight man. Uh, yeah. And what's distinctive about him is that he is completely lost outside of the real world. He is a pathetic excuse for a superhero. He <laughs> has no distinctive superhero. I mean, he's got a superhero suit that can fly. Yeah. But like he's he's not, there's That's a, sort of incidental. In yeah, a there's a scene there's a scene in season 2 where the tick turns to him and says that perhaps his his greatest superpower is his uh fear and discomfort or something like, a, like that. His vulnerability. His vulnerability. Maybe his greatest strength. And then Arthur's <laughs> like, "Well, that doesn't sound good at all." <laughs> but like that is in some ways like that is the exact other way to highlight how weird it is to be a superhero, right? Like Mm -hmm. one is highlighting a pure superhero against the background of uh, normal humanity. The other is to highlight normal humanity against the background of the absurdity of what it is to be a superhero. Yeah. And it's sort of like those two lights give us the dimension of object that allow us to play in this. And yeah, Arthur, Arthur is... I mean, the Tick and Arthur, you can take all those elements and create a whole person, which would be me, probably, just being bald in our sort of estimation of what it is. Like, it's, there's bravado, there's maybe um, hubris and kindness and outward expression, and then there's a tremendous amount of neuroses and, like we all have, sense of vulnerability and uh, fear. Right. And so they are, I feel like it was an easy theft from Don Quixote and Sancho Panza to like, they, it works like a charm. The guy goes running off. He's noble. He tilts at windmills. His precision ain't great, but his heart is pure. And then there's a slower, more methodical, um, more aware person who's being drawn into a life experience that they would never have, but is somehow like 
the responsible one and the the one who must suffer all the suffer through it because they're actually terrestrial. Let's hear a clip from season two of The Tick. And my guest is Ben Edlund, who's the creator of the show and the previous two shows of the same name and the comic that inspired those three television shows. <laughs> a real OCD issue going on. Yeah. So so in this scene, uh, The Tick is on the phone with his sidekick, Arthur's mom. And uh, Arthur and, and his sister are in the living room of the tiny apartment planning a sting operation at an underground gambling ring while Tick is asking about a future dinner date <laughs> with the bomb. Shepherd's pie, you say? Tell me more. What? Meat, potatoes, and vegetables all in one flaky edible dish? Get out! Since when are Tick and Mom such buds? Uh, I don't know, but they talk every day now, which actually helps me with my mother-son phone time requirement. Hmm. And the shepherd, what is his role in all this? Maybe I need a big blue roommate. Ah, there is no shepherd. What happened to your hands? Oh, I started doing Krav Maga again. I couldn't find my gloves. <laughs> Joan, you're a pip. All right, Thursday night for dinner it is. I'll tell the kids. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> That's a high point of action for the tick. <laughs> okay. I, and I want to play the, the original live action version of the show as well. This was huh? short-lived and ran on, on Fox in 2001. And the lead on that was Patrick Warburton. One of the, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't find a performer I love more than Patrick Warburton. And so, so basically, the tick is going to prank call the bad guy whose oh, name he is- he calls the terror. Yeah, his name is the terror. Uh, but it's 2001, so there's caller ID. Yep. And so the terror can see who's calling and then tracks them down, huh. uh, much to Arthur's chagrin. Hello? Uh-huh. There you are, hiding deep underground, plucking the strings of your dark web of fear like a spidery harpo. Hello? Tear, you now face the tick and his fearless sidekick, Arthur. We'll put an end to your reign of terror. Your reign of you! I just took my drowsy pills. Ha! Evil never sleeps, mister. Oh, leave me alone. I'm 112 years old. I'm done. Don't be an Adolf Quitler. Can't talk to me like that. Yes, I can, Quitler. I'm the terror! The world gasps at the mention of my name! Big deal. You think you can take me on, do you? You got that right, you big weenie. Bah! <laughs> <laughs> He's amazing. I mean, what's what's special about Warburton that is also what's special about Sarah Finowitz, who's, um, you know, a man of a thousand voices, yes. is... This instrument, and is also true of Adam West, is like this instrument is so absurd, but in, imbued with such sincerity. Yes. Like, if you think of Potty on Seinfeld or Johnny Johnson on news radio or whatever <laughs> Patrick Warburton character is your favorite, the narrator of California Adventure, <laughs> um, flying a high, flying over California, whatever that ride is called. Um, like, there is this inherent absurdity to it. And he knows where the jokes are and nails them. Mm -hmm. But there is also like such a deep, real, sweet sincerity to it. Yes. Yeah. 
and and a, a something weirdly comforting in them. Um, I mean, I think the tick, especially this most recent version, the Amazon version, happens to also just be an examination of uh, gender, as it turns out. And it started the first season. The first gender to look at in superhero is male, um, and. From Adam West to Patrick Warburton to Peter Serfinowicz, they all command the booming voice of authority. They could all do movie trailer voices all day if they wanted, right? And that's a certain, that's the sound of institutional authority, culturally speaking. In a world. Like, for whatever reason, that's what, it's a male voice. It's commanding. It booms. And it has almost a dad-like authority. But I feel like I really love these different guys we're talking about, including Townsend Coleman, who did the voice of the um, original uh, on the cartoon. There's like a door in the back of that and all this, like like you're saying, this kind of sweet sincerity and love and a little bit of vulnerability is able to come up through that. And that place is um, just really interesting to me that like it's a character that could wear many different like Dudley Do-Right is basically the same thing you know um he just doesn't realize it even more with Ben Edlin still to come don't go anywhere Ben's been working with The Tick for 30 years has worked on a bunch of other shows and movies during that time too how has his relationship with this character he created 30 years ago changed over the decades the answer after the break it's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build an online presence and run your business. Create your company's website using customizable layouts, along with features including e-commerce functionality and mobile editing. And Squarespace offers built-in search engine optimization. Go to squarespace.com NPR for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, Use the offer code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. A lot of people are excited that I mentioned on the air yesterday that I'll be on fresh air with Terry Gross on NPR. It happened. I finally got to interview Howard Stern. There was so much to talk about. It's a two-parter. You can listen on the Fresh Air podcast. Fairhaven's a city in a bubble. An actual bubble. It keeps the monsters out. Most of them, anyway. I never liked the look of movies on Blu-ray. For my money, Betamax is the superior format. I'm thinking of deleting Facebook and going back to MySpace. As far as beverages go, I'm just kind of over water. Though I guess at any given party, you're going to meet some dudes like that even if you're not in the middle of a nightmarish wasteland. Bubble, the sci-fi comedy from MaximumFun.org. Just open your podcast app and search for Bubble. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm here with Ben Edlund. He's the creator of the superhero The Tick. It's now a live-action TV show starring Peter Serafinowicz, Griffin Newman, and my pal John Hodgman. Its first two seasons are streaming now on Amazon. You spent most of the 15 or 20 years between now and 
the last version of The Tick on screen, mm -hmm. uh, working as a television writer on hour-long narrative television. You worked on Gotham and Firefly and Supernatural for many years, among other things. Mm -hmm. And on those kinds of shows, narrative is like the number one top thing. All of those are story shows yeah. where the, the story is what people are there for. Like stuff is happening. Feelings are happening. You know what I mean? <laughs> Epics like, are epicking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the new version of The Tick has a lot more of that than the previous versions of The Tick. I imagine that's in part just because of the different way that people are watching it. You know, obviously kids weren't watching Saturday morning cartoons serially no. the way that I watched The Tick on Amazon Prime. Right. But it really does change a lot about the show and it makes it less parodic or if not less parodic more the thing that is being parodied at the same time as the parody is happening like yeah. it doesn't let go of any of the layers at all like it's no. like we will deliver actual action we will deliver actual superhero parody <laughs> we will deliver actual feelings all of these things all at the same time and you just have to take all of them if you can yes which is a strange approach in some ways uh-huh right? yeah it's a weird show man <laughs> it's a weird show and yeah i don't know like uh i didn't tonally it's a, it's a weird show and I mean, I think we have been allowed to do it. I wasn't sure if we would have, we were going to get away with it, which is, I mean, basically, how can you drink the Kool-Aid, but then make fun of Jim Jones? <laughs> like we do both, right? Um, we are doing both. And, and none of the jokes are, none of the jokes sell out the narrative or the Right. Emotional stakes. No. Like it, the yeah. jokes are about, there are very weird, silly characters. And, but you know, you're, taken there, totally. there's a big character named Lobstercules. Yeah. Initially pronounced Lobstercules, who's a Herculean Jeez, sure. lobster. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, yeah. Like that is as silly as you could possibly be, basically. Yes. But they'd also like at no point is does the fact that this character's name is Lobstercules make it or her any less of an important character in the narrative of the show or the show's emotional stakes. In fact, she ends up being more having greater emotional stakes than you might expect. Yes. Um, I like I like imagining someone who doesn't know what's happening about like they're just watching the tick they've never seen anything before on the tick and they're trying to figure out whether the makers of the tick are demented like deranged and and don't realize how dumb it is because that's sort of what it is this is a universe telling its story that has no clue that any of this is funny Lobstercules is a problem. That's a bank robbing crustacean that can pull. That's a problem. That's not a joke. And then as you go further into Lobstercules, you realize it's worse than you could have imagined. It's even more tragic. <laughs> and like that character for me um, is, uh, and I hope to continue to chronicle her, like deeply poignant and um, is. Uh, was a superhero like a thousand years ago underwater 
and talks about saving sailors as a matter of course and like gets screwed by it and like that is not the ideation of a parody universe it's not the ideation of um for example like uh family guy and i'm not that's a that's a brand of humor and it and it works and but it's one of its one of its facilities is it's able to throw the baby, the bathwater, and everything out once it goes for a certain joke. And then you're left with these characters with tremendously elastic human proportions because in the previous cutaway, Peter Griffin was a, like a, a, you know, bought a person or uh, like <laughs> murdered somebody or something. Some horrible thing happened and it's gone now. Or even, I mean, I've heard you talk about Police Squad with regard to the first sure. uh, live action version of Indeed. the tech. Yeah. And like Police Squad, which begat the Naked Gun movies, is like one of the funniest things ever. I agree. And it has 10 trillion jokes and none of them, none of those jokes really sell out. The, t- the tone of the show is very, very consistent. That's and true. Everything that happens proceeds according to uh, the... The reality is consistent. Right, but there's no emotional stakes at all in Police Squad. It's really just a long series of jokes that fits the format of a police procedural that we're familiar with. Right, and Uh, there's affection. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I I agree. Like, in the case of... And the the previous live action with uh, Patrick Warburton functioned more in that mean or in that area, right? And... The 15 intervening years of studying, which is what I did, I studied uh, character, story, and the mechanics of storytelling. So when the engineering and the kind of conception of how to make a show like this work today in an environment that has too much content in it, it just has too much content. That's just our environment. Everyone is anxious about what they haven't seen. They have a lot that they haven't seen. I can't watch The Tick. I, I got four things I'm not watching now. You know, that's the universe we're stepping into. What's required is... And I'm out here trying to watch Catastrophe Season oh, 4. See? I mean, there's a lot. And and it's good. There's a lot. It's an explosion of stuff. And a lot of it is more intimate, personal, and relevant than we're accustomed to because we were coming off the teat of broadcast television which did not tailor itself to individuals. It, it made right. individuals tailor themselves to a broad demographic. So we're dazzled. We're, we're overcome. And in that universe, what can be done? Well, the only things that last, catastrophe is a good example. There's something so idiosyncratic and personal about those people that when the flicker stops and the story stops for the moment a month later you'll be like how are they are they okay how are they doing that's what's necessary in order to persist in this environment like i and i think we've pulled off a pretty good version of that because we have so much absurdism that we have to get through and enjoy before you can kind of look back and go wait but i actually care a little bit about arthur and his sister about Arthur and his family, about the Tick and Arthur, about the Tick and his own identity. Are they okay? How are they doing? Are they going to be okay? What's going to happen next? That's like, that's, I think, part of what makes television uh, series function. 
besides the fact that superheroes are your job, Ooh. do you have a different relationship to superheroes n- now uh, as a middle-aged man <laughs> than you did as a kid or an adolescent? Yes. Yes. And I think that's partly because I'm in a society that I believe is beginning to have a different or has evolved in its relationship to superheroes. You know, we're talking about those three phases. There's like the early childhood, there's the adolescence, and then there's the sort of like, oh, is the world really like this? Ah, oh, damn it. I those... call that the, I, I'd characterize that one as maybe the freshman year of college. Yes, there you go. And you're like, oh, God. Adulthood seems strong. But... Uh, right. But the when you look over the cliff and you realize what, what the view is, right? And that's a dark betrayal of those two prior stages, Right. Adolescence is so turbulent because you start to get a sense of the cliff is coming. And then you look over the cliff and then the rest of life is how do we get down it <laughs> or whatever, you know. So my relationship with superheroes, I had wish fulfillment. I was like everybody else. I wanted to be Batman. I wanted to be Superman. I wanted to fly. I wanted to have power. Those desires were channeled by that entertainment into, I also am told and began to understand, I want to have, in having power, the ability to help others. And that was a good message, and that was great. Adolescence, that's turbulence, that's problems. I want to help others, but I don't know how, or there's an issue. And then I helped others, and I got for it. <laughs> you know, like, is, right? So those are... Right now, I feel as though we're in this interesting place, and I am too, looking at superheroes not as a wish fulfillment vehicle because they're too rampant. They have overgrown whatever garden they were in politely doing that. They have, like bamboo, they're in the driveway now. What are they doing in the driveway? They're everywhere, right? What is that? That's different than wish fulfillment. They are now expressing something... um, that is, I feel, and I've said it maybe before, but like, we're in a catharsis. I think that they're doing something like, we know we're godlike now. We know we have capacities that are frightening to us, you know, uh, and the the number of like turns in the near future, some of them are global and ecological, but others are like the gray goo issue, nanotech or AI, the singularity. Those things are very disturbing, and they're from us and our power. And I used to think of it in this way, although uh, subsequent analysis of this movie, I don't know if it's the best reference, but the gods must be crazy. Coke bottle falls out of the sky and lands on on an indigenous tribe, and it is an object that is unprecedented. And it is hard in a way that nothing in their environment is hard. And it is a tool and a weapon and all these things. And then it's finally decided that this is a curse and it must be ejected. We're in a place where we made this bottle ourselves, threw it up in the air, and then it landed on our heads. And we're like, what is this? What is all of this? We're stunned by our capacities and terrified of their potential. And right next to us is this whole history world of people who, with great power, come great responsibility. And we're in a sort of a, I think, a catharsis with that. And, yeah, like, my relationship to them has changed as ours has. I just have been um, 
documenting those changes in a personal journal called The Tick. That's, uh, yeah, that's been, it's been interesting. Ben, thank you for joining us on Bullseye. I was, I was really happy to get to meet you. Yeah, I was really happy to meet you too. Thank you. Ben Edland, everyone. You can watch seasons one and two of The Tick on Amazon Prime Video. Ben and his team just announced that Amazon will not be making more of the show, and they're looking for a new home for it. You can tweet out your support using the hashtag SaveTheTick. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where we saw a beautiful woman in a long flowing dress doing a photo shoot along the edge of the lake. We were struck not just because it was a picturesque scene, but also because the dress was clearly dragging in a ton of goose poop. A lot of goose poop in the park. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our producer Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We have help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, DJW. Our thanks to him for sharing it with us. There is a collection, a pay-what-you-will collection of music from our show on Bandcamp that Dan put up there, so you can go uh, pay Dan something for that music. If you like it, you want to keep it. Our theme song is Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. Our thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. And before you go, there are so many episodes of this show. (laughs) So many episodes. I've been doing this show for almost 20 years now, since I was 19. Pretty much all those episodes are at MaximumFun.org. Even the time that me and my friends interviewed Dustin Diamond from Saved by the Bell, and he was he was really rude. Um, anyway, uh, you can find all those on our website, MaximumFun.org. Uh, you can also find uh, this episode, all the interviews on this episode, and uh, other episodes on our YouTube page. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Bullseye on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Uh, we hope you will like and follow us there. And I guess that's just about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.